the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There's a culture war going on in this country. We can no longer remain silent on the issues that affect us all. Decisions we make now will determine our future. But how do we engage with the culture in a way that honors Jesus? How do we rise above the noise to know what is right and what is true? It's time to bring God back into the conversation. It's time to reconnect. Here's Carmen. Welcome, friends. This is the Reconnect with Carmen LaBerge. I'm Birga Alden. I'm a former daily radio show host and the current executive director of Love, Inc. of Albuquerque, and I get to fill in today. Here on the show, we are putting God in his place back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation, whatever the headline, whatever the debate, from foreign affairs to affairs of the heart, from politics to parenting, God has something to say about all of it. Yet all too often, his people are standing on the sidelines of the discussion. We hope to change that, and we want to help you get God back into every conversation by challenging you to think about what you're thinking about, getting God's perspective on the news and issues of the day in order that you can be an ambassador of that perspective to others. We invite you to connect with us online at reconnectwithcarmen.com, like us on Facebook, and let us know what you're thinking about on Twitter using the hashtag CarmenTalk. Coming up on today's program, we're going to be talking about the nature of God and everyday theology with a Bible teacher and author. Then in the second half, we are going to be joined by Carmen to discuss the headlines and news of the day. Up first, though, we want to have a conversation with Jen Wilkin. Wilkin, excuse me, she's a speaker, writer, and author of two books. The latest book is None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. It's published by Legioner, the Gospel Coalition, or she's been published by Legioner, the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and others. She's been speaking at the Gospel Coalition in the 2017 National Conference in early April. That's going to be taking place. She's been teaching Bible studies for 17 years. And of course, you can follow her on Twitter at Jennifer Wilkin. So Jen, welcome to the Reconnect. Glad to have you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be on. I was looking up some of your information and I happened to see a description of you that kind of melted my heart just a little bit. I thought, man, if only someone would talk about me that way. This is from your pastor, Matt Chandler. He says, she, referring to you, is a woman intoxicated by the God of the Bible. What a beautiful description. (laughs) He's a pretty nice guy. (laughs) Well, I would say so. But obviously, you've got some big endorsements for a lot of your writing. Everybody from, you know, popular writers. Today, you've got um, Nancy DeMoss, you've got all kinds of great people, but tell us about who you are. Give us an introduction to yourself, if you would, please. I'm a wife and a mom. I have four children uh, who are sort of grown at this point. They're between the ages of 20 and 16, so I've only got one still at home right now. But I have taught women in various capacities, whether that was in my living room or in a parachurch setting or 
in a church setting. I've taught women the Bible for almost 20 years now, and out of those uh, interactions, I have developed a real passion for Bible literacy in the church, specifically among women, but certainly not limited to women. Bible literacy is an issue for all of us as believers. It's interesting that you bring that up. I had a conversation at a coffee shop not too long ago with uh, one, of, one of my cousins who was saying, do you ever find that some of these women's Bible studies are kind of dumbed down and that they don't really get into the word? That's yeah, I think you bring that up. Yeah, obviously, you've got a passion to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, I do. It's been a little bit of a point of frustration to me that for the last at least 20 years, we have tended to resource women almost wholly at the feelings level when it comes to um, what we would typically call a Bible study. And so I'm really looking to reclaim a purer definition of Bible study and to challenge women to love God um, with their minds, that their feelings would be informed by right thinking about the way the scriptures talk about who God is and the implications of, of those those um, aspects of his character. Mm. And what an important battle. And I'm going to use the word battle because I think we as women are inundated with images, with sound bites, with video clips and all these things that are designed to make us emotionally respond. But how many times do we want to sit down and take the time to learn and investigate and pour our minds into something that needs further uh, dissection, I suppose? Right. I think for a long time there's been sort of this thought process in place that um, thinking is not really necessary for faith, that faith is, is almost entirely feeling. And I would say that with the shift in particular that we're seeing in the culture, you know, as the United States is moving more and more into a post-Christian context, it's going to be more important than ever for both men and women to have a thinking faith, a faith that is grounded in the fact of who God said he is, not just the feelings that we have about being a part of the family of God. And so I, I'm also more aware than ever that um, in many cases, churches have not discipled people into an understanding of the scriptures. We have assumed they would do it on their own and that they know how to do so. And I meet women on a regular basis who um, start to learn a method of study and then come to me and say, I've been in a church my whole life and no one has ever told me how to do this. So I think the time is right for us to begin to um, return to what it means to truly equip the saints in the knowledge of their sacred text, not just so that they can be knowledgeable, but because to know God is to love Him. And we will have deep and abiding feelings for our Heavenly Father, um, but they will, instead of just having, you know, something driven by the last worship song we listened to or the last experience we had, they'll be grounded in His revelation of Himself and the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. So your latest book, it's entitled None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. Do you deal with the emotion aspect at all? Because we are very emotional creatures, but God is not known to be driven by his emotion, of course. So do you look at that aspect? Well, I mean, God does have emotions. Uh, I think we see that. But uh, the book in particular, this book in particular, is dealing with a certain set of God's attributes, his incommunicable attributes, the things that are only true about God that never become true of, of us. So, for example, um, his omnipotence. You and I will never become all-powerful, and it's not helpful for us to desire that. That's something that's only true about God. So the book is really geared toward raising people's level of awe around who the Bible describes God to be. I think that typically we have a tendency to sort of want to bring God down to our level. We want to 
say, oh, he's just like me, uh, when, when we think about how a problem should be handled or how a request should be answered. But the Bible describes for us a God who is not like us, and, and we need him to not be like us. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Reconnect. I'm Birga Alden, speaking with Jen Wilkin, a Bible teacher, writer, and author of two books, and her latest book is called None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. You can follow Jen on Twitter at Jennifer Wilkin. I, I'm so intrigued by this concept of, of emotion and education and biblical literacy and how these things kind of all fit together. And I know this wasn't even necessarily the, the track of questioning we were anticipating going down, but I, I find that it all really does intertwine very well. So you were describing God does absolutely have emotion, but he has all these attributes that we don't have. And yet learning about these attributes drives us to a different emotion, which is awe. Yes. I find that fascinating. <laughs> I think that if you think about what we we think we want to feel when we come to a church service, we want to um, gather with other believers, we want to feel love and acceptance and grace and mercy, and these are all things that God demonstrates toward us. But over and over again in the scriptures, we are um, we are encouraged. I would even say commanded to have fear of the Lord and this idea of fearing God. You know, as soon as I say, hey, you know what, you ought to fear the Lord, someone will typically respond with, oh, no, 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 but perfect love casts out fear. That's absolutely true. We no longer live in fear of the wrath of God, and that is the perfect, uh, that is what perfect love casts out. But the believer does still live in a right reverence toward God. That is a holy and right fear, understanding that the God who should have and could have demonstrated his wrath fully against all sinners has withheld it from me, has redirected it onto Christ. And so you read, you know, the typical women's conference or whatever gathers around Proverbs 31 and exhorts us to be women who follow that model, but Proverbs 31.30 says that um, a woman who fears the Lord is who is to be praised. But we don't typically think about that when we're thinking about what ought I do to be um, a better follower of Christ. I should I should actually cultivate a fear of the Lord. Yeah, that's a that's a powerful thought. I think us as women, especially as as moms of kids in in homes, you know, what does that look like in walking out our day to day? How do we have that reverential fear of the Lord and model that to our kids? That's that's a kind of heavy one. It's a big one, right? Uh, it's. Uh, all of the attributes that I discuss in None Like Him, because they're ones that you and I can't and shouldn't take on, they point out our limitedness. They show where we are poorly equipped to be the God of the universe, but we often are trying to be anyway, right? So even though I can never be all-knowing, I can never be omniscient like God is, I'm certainly willing to try as hard as I can by surveilling every single moment of my children's lives, by making sure that I read every article on parenting, by making sure their nutrition is perfect. You know, we have so much information that floods uh, at our feet, and we think, if I just had all of the facts, then I would be able to make all the right decisions. But only God is is equipped to hold all of the facts, and only God does hold all the facts. And that's why so many of us, suffer from things like information overload and anxiety because we saturate ourselves uh, to a degree that we're just not designed to do. So I think as a mom, and especially as a mom walking this out in front of my children, my children need to understand that I recognize my limits and I'm not going to just keep always looking for the next article or the next um, 
book that's going to give me the right information that I'm going to ask the Lord to grant me wisdom to handle the facts that I do have well, and then I'm going to rest in the knowledge that even though I don't know everything he does, and ultimately he's in control. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the book, None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing, written by my guest right now, Jen Wilkin. So elsewhere in the book, you have a quote that says, human beings are designed to reflect God's glory, but we choose instead to rival it. Can you explain a little bit what you were thinking when you wrote that? Yeah, I mean, I think we see this play out in the Garden of Eden where um, the serpent tells the woman, hey, you know what, there's a tree over here where God is withholding something good from you. And so even though Eve and Adam are inhabiting this perfect garden that is filled with all of these good things that the Lord has given them, everything that they need, they reach out for knowledge that is not intended for them. And I think that we tend to do the same thing. We are always reaching for that which is forbidden. It is not good or right for me to want to be, like the the serpent said, he knows that you will be like him, meaning you will know the things he knows and you will be able to do the things that he does. And rather, we're, we're called to be like him in our humanness, not like him in his divinity. We are image bearers, but we are not exact replicas of God. And when we bear his image, we do so within our limits. And, and in order to see what it looks like to bear the image of God, we have to look to the perfect image bearer, Christ. Mm. As women, and especially women in this day and age, we're encouraged to not be bound by limits, to break glass ceilings, to do all these right. kinds of things. But why is it a good thing that God has placed limits and boundaries for us? Well, It must be a good thing or he wouldn't have done it, right? He doesn't do anything that isn't for our good. And I think that we tend to look at our limits and think, oh, the reason that I'm limited is because of sin in the world, right? But if you look at Adam and Eve in the garden, they had limits even before sin enters into the picture. They were limited just by the fact that they had a physical body because the body is a set of limits that keeps us from being omnipresent. You can't be in more than one place at one time. You can only be so tall. There are only certain things you can reach on the shelf based on your height. So being limited is by design. It is something that God did, and so therefore it must be for our good. And, of course, any time we bump into a limit um, that is placed there by God, then it intends to show us that we need him. And so the more that we push against what are good and right limits in our lives, the more we are saying to God, I don't need you. I've got this just fine on my own. Yeah. It's a tough one because just this culture that we live in, everything around us is screaming, you know, break limits, break barriers, break boundaries. You know, everybody can do everything, but it really wasn't part of God's design. And and it's hard to convey the message from the biblical perspective that those borders, those boundaries, those limits were put into place for our protection, for our good. But the world doesn't want to receive that message often. No, they certainly don't. And we, um, you know, we can say that to the world uh, to an extent, but ultimately there's enough work to be done within the body of believers with regard to pushing the boundaries. That that's probably, you know, the best place for us to start is with the house of God. I think that a lot of the reasons that um, lost people look at the church and don't see a compelling witness because they don't see us regarding boundaries any differently than they do sometimes. And so um, a life that's lived as an alien and a stranger is one that says, like David says, 
the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Mm. That's a good message. We're talking about none like him, 10 ways God is different from us and why that's a good thing. This is by Jen Wilkin. You can connect with her on, on Twitter at Jennifer Wilkin. So God has many attributes that you cover, 10 specifically in this book. One of them is immutability, so his unchangeableness. Why is there a great comfort for us in being personally connected to a God who doesn't change? But what do we need to uh, be aware of in a, in a cautionary sense with that as well? It's so funny. This is the chapter I think that comes up in interviews the most, and it makes me laugh because his immutability is probably the one that I have uh, idolatrously wanted to ascribe to myself the most. Like, I don't like change. I don't want things to change. I want to believe that I can't change if there's something about me that would be hard to fix. And yet the Bible speaks of God as the only thing, the only person, uh, and he's the only entity that does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we have a tendency to say this about ourselves. If someone comes to me and says, uh, why do you always uh, shut me down when I try to talk to you? And I, I just want to say, you know what, that's just who I am. I can't change. But our hope of the gospel is rooted in the fact that God doesn't change and that we can. That is the gospel. That when God says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, that is our assurance of salvation because it means that he can never change his verdict on us once he has pronounced us his children. But in the case of humans, what do we want? We want to say, like, like um, Amazing Grace says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. We don't want to be who we were before we came to faith. And by grace, and through the process of sanctification, we are increasingly transformed in the image of Christ. We can change. And if we couldn't change, then the gospel would be incomplete. But gloriously, because God doesn't change and we can, we can be conformed into the image of his Son. I would imagine that that also needs to be, I hate to use the phrase talking point, because that's not exactly what I mean, but when you've got somebody that is antagonistic to the faith and they're saying, oh, well, your faith needs to change to keep up with the times, or it needs to be adapted to, you know, deal with current situations or policies or laws, you know, we, we can fall back on the fact that God is unchangeable. So we find ourselves in a little bit of a, a situation where we've got to just stick to it. Like, nope, God is who he says he was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Right, right. And we need to see that as not, um, that's, a, that's a point of assurance for us. It's not something that makes our faith out of date. It's something that makes our faith transcend any particular date on the calendar. Mm. That's a really good point. And, and so any, I guess, argument that starts coming up, it's like, well, why don't you adopt these laws into your, you know, bylaws of your church? Or why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? Because times are changing, you know, for there to be hopefully that education within church leadership to say, because God's word is God's word and it is unchanging. Right. That's right. Absolutely. Man, lots of good things to discuss today. I've got to decide how much, uh, just cram in before I run out of time with you. So I want to talk about omnipresence, this concept of omnipresence. So God being everywhere all the time, it's one of those mind-boggling things. We can't understand it. <laughs> Why do you think it's one of those characteristics that we kind of secretly desire that we could have? 
Well, I mean, gosh, think how much more productive I could be if I could just be in at least two places at once. I mean, and we, we have all of these ways that we try to give ourselves a sense that we're omnipresent, right? Um, we all want to be sort of the consummate fly on the wall. We want to know, uh, we want to know what's going on in more than one place at one time. Uh, and so even things like, you know, I mean, this is a little personally convicting for me. I have uh, find my friends on my phone, and I know where my kids are by just looking to see where their phone is. And I draw a lot of comfort from that. But then there are times where I just think, man, I'd rather not know this. I don't, don't need to have, you know, feel like I can be with them down at college as well as at home. They need to just be where they are, and I need to be where I am. Or even things like FaceTime, where I can feel like if I can get on FaceTime with someone, it's the same as being there. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with FaceTime, right? I mean, it's, it's actually a, a, a gracious gift that has come to us um, through technology. The problem is only when we begin to say there's no difference between being physically present with someone and being um, present at a distance in a way that makes me feel like I'm in two places at once. We always need to value face-to-face and personal relationships more than virtual ones. But uh, the interesting thing to me about the omnipresence of God is how often I hear believers say, I just don't feel close to the Lord. And um, my, my response to that is always, you know, I want to acknowledge that legitimate feeling, but I also want to remind you that the Lord is close. I mean, he, he is everywhere fully present, so we are never far from him. We may not sense that we are close to him. And we live our lives differently when we live them in light of that. If I believe that God is everywhere fully present, it's both a comfort to me when I want his presence, and it's also a conviction to me when I want to tell myself that he's not in the room because I want to commit whatever sin it is that I have in front of me. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a question from a slightly different angle, though, because I I know some friends that have struggled with this. With an omnipresent God, God being present even in the times of great pain or in times of violation, when they say, if God was there, why didn't he do something? Right. Um, Well, again, you know, we have, he has all knowledge. We have as much knowledge as our brains are able to handle. I think Tim Keller is the one who says that if we knew everything that God knows, we would answer all of our prayers exactly the way that God answers them. And so when we're in the middle of a trial or a difficulty, Uh, I can't think of a worse thing to contemplate than that God is not fully present there, because if he is indeed fully present, it means that he understands and sees every single piece of what I'm going through, and I can trust that even though I may not even live to see how he weaves all that together for the good of those that love him, that ultimately he will. Because I do think one of the difficulties, uh, particularly for people who have suffered deep, deep hurt, is that they want to see the resolution of that hurt in the 70 or 80 years that the Lord gives them during their time on earth. But we know that that isn't always what happens. I mean, it happens in TV shows and it happens on movies that you get a nice, neat plot resolution. But many of us will go to our graves um, still carrying unresolved storylines. And so, you know, I've lived long enough to have my own set of deep hurts that are not likely to be resolved during this lifetime. But when I think, okay, so if the Lord makes sense out of this in the lives of my children or my children's children or their children, is that enough for me? And I can only answer that with yes, that is more than enough. Mm. 
talking today with Jen Wilkin, a Bible teacher and speaker, and she has written her latest book called None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. Let's real briefly, before we run out of time, address God's self-sufficiency. We really do want to, you know, be a nice little neat package in our human bodies, but we will never be self-sufficient like God. Why should we be encouraged by that? Well, I think it's encouragement, because it's particularly within um, our, our culture in the United States, where we're all supposed to be self-made and self-sufficient, uh, that the Bible actually says that's antithetical to the gospel message, that the, the more that we grow in our sanctification, the more that we grow in holiness, the more dependent we become on God, not the more independent we become from Him. So we actually grow in our understanding of our neediness, the longer that we are saved. I mean, I think you see this in the words of Paul when he says, you know, oh, I'm the chiefest of sinners, and we all kind of want to do this eye roll, like, you got to be kidding me, right? But what's happened there? You know, he's grown more mature in his understanding of his faith, and the longer that he is a believer, the more he sees his great need of God. So um, salvation, sanctification, those are not about becoming less needy. They're actually about recognizing the full extent of our need for God that's met for us in Christ. Mm. Really good stuff. So, Jen, thank you so much for your time. I'll encourage people to check it out. The book is entitled None Like Him, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing by author Jen Wilkin. Thank you so much and a very happy new year to you. Thank you. Great to be on. Appreciate your time. So, friends, it is a brand new year, and we're excited to be sharing it with you. You can visit reconnectwithcarmen.com and check out the resources that we have posted for you. You can sign up for the podcast, donate to the ministry, and share today's show with somebody new. This is The Reconnect. I'm Birga Alden filling in for Carmen LaBerge. If you're missing Carmen, she's going to be joining us by phone in just a few minutes. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Reconnect with your host, Carmen LaBerge. Now, back to Carmen. You are listening to The Reconnect with Carmen LaBerge, where we're putting God in his place back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. So we're talking about what people are talking about, equipping you to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. My name is Birga. I'm filling in for Carmen, but Carmen just so happens to be joining me. And don't forget, you can always connect online with reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can like us on Facebook and let us know what you're thinking about on Twitter using the hashtag CarmenTalk. Twitter, or I was going to say Twitter, Carmen and I have been utilizing Twitter quite a bit today, exchanging some information back and forth. So it's been a very helpful platform for us. But that's exactly what we're jumping in today is that topic of platform. And joining us now from sunny Florida is Carmen LaBerge herself. Carmen, how's it going? It's so great. Thanks for having me on. It's kind of fun. Thanks for letting me take over your show while you're in Florida. <laughs> how's your writing going? So it's going very well. I'm um, I'm I'm excited to be working on a book that will be on bookshelves and hopefully in people's hands in September. But my writing deadline is February the first, so putting the um, putting certainly the final edits on the first draft this week. Hmm. You know, I find it funny and the way that God would only God would do things for us to be having this conversation about platform, because man, this has been one of my biggest personal struggles. 
Mm-hmm. When you are an individual and you get into media, you get into radio, get into any thing where you're trying to have your voice be heard, it is a very real struggle to establish a platform. And then when you throw in the faith component of wanting to honor God with the platform you've been given, it puts you into a whole new field. And so I find this to be very timely. I think I'm going to learn a lot from you. And I'm just in, intrigued about what you have to say about this notion of platform and, and some of the ways that we've seen it really come to light with some very uh, predominant headlines over the last couple of days, including things like Meryl Streep and her address uh, that she gave to the audience and really to the world at the Golden Globes. And then we have some football stories and all kinds of great stuff to get into today. Yeah, I'd love to talk about Meryl Streep. I'd love to talk about Deshaun Watson from the Clemson National Championship football team. Um, and um, and then I think it would be great if we could have a little platform conversation about the president who is going to use his platform to give a final address to the nation. So maybe, well, I don't know if we've got time to do all that, but let's try it. Well, we'll go for it. Let's start off with the Meryl Streep Golden Globe speech. For those people that didn't watch it live, she was presented with a an achievement award. She takes the stage. She says a few gracious words and then jumps into a political uh, conversation. So what do you think? Did she use her platform well, or did she kind of hijack the evening? So here's, um, I think that for Christians, if what we're trying to do when we are um, – when we are taking in media, so when I'm sitting there watching the Golden Globes and I'm watching it with friends or I'm watching it with my family or I have my phone in my hand and I'm going to be tweeting and responding to tweets related to it, so whatever whatever the community environment is that I'm in, where I'm interacting on this material, one of the things that as a Christian I feel like I should always be looking for um, are those opportunities to reframe the conversation because there's no way that if you just responded directly to what Meryl Streep said um, that you're going to be saying that you're going to be bringing much to the conversation that's going to be unique and so um, so I am a person who when I look at and then listen to what Meryl Streep had to say I start at the very beginning. I mean, she started by saying, I have lost my voice because I've been screaming and and lamenting over the weekend, and I lost my mind sometime earlier this year, so I have to read. Okay. Mm. So, Birga, I would would just latch right onto that, and I would say, look, whatever she says after that, she's acknowledging that she has written in a state of uh, being out of her mind. She's already acknowledged that she's out of her mind. So why would we then think she's going to say anything that's rational or meaningful? Now, what I'm looking for is for people to have the mind of Christ. I'm certainly seeking in my own life to cultivate the mind of Christ. How do I do that? So I'm going to move into a conversation when she says, "Then, you know, I have to read. I'm going to move into a conversation with my friends about, well, what are you reading? Like, what, what are you filling your mind with? And if all you're reading um, are, you know, scripts that are being put in your hand that make you think you are someone other than you are, or if all you're reading is the feedback within, inside the very democratic bubble where she operates, or if all you're reading is the insider conversations that are happening in a very insulated environment in Hollywood, um, then you're not reading enough to know what those people who you describe as grinding their teeth who do think that football and mixed martial arts are an art, um, you don't have any idea where they're coming from. And so this whole concept that as an actor, her job is to empathize with other people Man, if anything was laid bare on the Golden Globes, it was the fact that Meryl Streep does not know how to empathize with anyone. 
You know, you just brought something to my mind that I had not even considered, but you reminded me about the fact that she said that she had been lamenting. And I don't know what she was lamenting over and whether we're going back to, you know, something she concluded her speech with, talking about the loss of her friend, of course, the actress who played Mm -hmm. the iconic character Princess Leia. But if you're looking at, at Hollywood individuals and somebody who seems to be cut down in the prime of their life, and then you look back and say, you know, what did they stand for? Did their life have meaning? Did their life have purpose? I could imagine that maybe she's struggling with some of those own questions in her mind about her own mortality. Maybe that is why she felt like she needed to use that platform to, I don't know, project her political opinions. Yeah, it's impossible to know what her motivations were. I, I took the... I'm, uh, I, I'm losing or I lost my voice in screaming and lamentation over the weekend. I took that to mean she was rehearsing for this. Hmm. And, um, and so in the rehearsing for this and considering how she was going to, in a very short period of time, um, cut Donald Trump down to the size that she thinks he ought to be, um, uh, which was clearly her intent. And in so doing, she cut down all of his supporters. I mean, you know, it, it, the basket of deplorables comment by Hillary Clinton um, is now, you know, is now matched with the Streep, uh, Meryl Streep comment about, you know, we're all, you know, teeth grinders, I guess. So anyway, um, or bear teeth, people bearing their teeth, um, which, is, uh, which is a reference to animals, by the way. I mean, she's basically saying, I mean, if you think about what she said, She is describing everyone who is a supporter of Donald Trump as an animal. Mm. And so if you, this is the thinking that is in the mind of the person who is addressing the Golden Golden Globes, wearing a dress that that costs more money than most people make in a year. So her her ability to speak into the lives of ordinary people, um, I mean, really people should, you know, they should take a long pause. Um, she did then ask a really great question. She actually said, who are we? She's looking at the Hollywood insiders, the celebrities, the stars, and the members of the foreign press, who she describes as the most vilified, seg- most vilified segment in American society. Mm-hmm. And then she asked this great question, who are we? So if I'm having a worldview conversation with someone and I'm trying to get them to think about what we're thinking about, I'm lifting up that question. And, and I don't think Meryl Streep answered it the right way. We're not just a bunch of people from other places. Like, I don't think that's uh, who defines who we are. Um, uh, and certainly how she describes herself as born and raised and created in New Jersey. So she's giving away right there her worldview which is completely devoid of God. Um, so um, it's, it, you have to listen for the perspective that the person is giving away and what they are saying, and then understand that from that perspective, she thinks this is all there is. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, is she, is she grieving the death of Carrie Fisher? I mean, quite possibly. Um, Carrie Fisher is going to, uh, you know, has been cremated and wanted to be kept in an urn that's shaped like a giant Prozac pill. So I'm just saying the despair and the and the oddity of the worldview um, that is presented by these folks is is a challenge to the rest of America that doesn't see things the same way that people in Hollywood do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, so I want to juxtapose that story versus what we saw coming out of the national championship last night with Deshaun Watson. 
I, I have to say I'm, I'm pretty football ignorant other than the fact that my brother-in-law is a crazy LSU fan, so I just kind of smiled when I knew that Alabama had gone down. But aside from that, I know there's this really great, great story that came out with just this quick interview and this player giving glory to God in the championship moment. So talk a little bit about that, if you would. So Deshaun Watson, um, he is, if people need a new new sports hero, if they need somebody for their kids to be looking up to, um, if they need, uh, you know, if they need a kid who understands what adversity is and has a very active and living faith, is grounded um, at home and is a good student and, I mean, is a specimen on the football field, it, you should, people should be turned on to Deshaun Watson. Um, and there's a whole series of YouTube videos about him. Um, and one of the things that I, I love about this kid is he's totally unashamed to be seen praying. Um, he writes um, uh, um, scripture passages and then the word Godspeed on his um, sweatbands that he wears on his wrists. I mean, he wants it constantly in front of him. He wants to be actually mindful that this is a platform that God has given him, that every opportunity that he has had has come from God, and that God has seen him through great adversity in his life. This is a kid who, um, you know, grew up, one kid, he's got three siblings. There's four kids in, in the family. His, he's got a single mom. They grew up in Gainesville, Georgia, um, and they lived in a Habitat for Humanity house. I mean, she's a, she's a hardworking woman who... Um, you know, it takes a lot to qualify to be a Habitat family. You have to put in tons of sweat equity, and then you're actually paying off your um, your, your mortgage as you go. Um, but there's a whole lot of dignity in that, in owning your own home. And so he he knows all of that. That's the that's the background out of which um, he grew up. And then in 2012, his mom was diagnosed with. Um, cancer in her mouth, and the only oh. solution to save her life was to remove her tongue. Oh, goodness. And so um, here's a kid who, um, he was 12 at the time, here's a kid who, who said, I mean, who says in these videos, you know, I know what adversity is, and I, I know who God is. Um, uh, we need God um, to, to be God. Uh, and so when, when you were talking uh, in the first half of the show, about, you know, we got we need God to be God, because if God's too much like us, then that's not what we need, um, because we can't handle what we can't handle, but God can, that we're limited, and we need to recognize our limitations. Deshaun Watson, that's the language that he speaks, um, and that's the truth that he knows. So um, he talked about last night, you know, he's, he has this platform, the end of the championship, where's the first place they're putting that microphone on, you know, on national television? They're putting it in the face of the quarterback. And, uh, and he immediately gave glory to God. Um, he, he talked about God being, um, having a plan. Uh, and that this is what God wants. Now, I'm not going to be the person who says that, you know, God loves Clemson and doesn't love Alabama because I don't want to hear from the, right. the total um, world tied nation today. Um, but but um, uh, here's a kid who believes in the sovereignty of God and he trusts God in the good and the bad. So I, yeah, I, I think, think, I think his man, interview would have been much the same had they lost. Yeah, they, he wouldn't have gotten the interview as quickly, right? The other quarterback would have been interviewed, who is also a, just an incredible young man. 
Um, but I think that uh, I think you're right. I think the interview would have been the same. I think that he would have said things like he said after he tore his ACL uh, at the end of last season. You know, I think he would have said, you know, I'm going to grow through this. I'm going to learn through this. Adversity is a part of life. Um, I mean, those are that's a, that's a part of the language that he speaks. Yeah. All right. Well, there's one other big topic that we need to cover before we run out of time, and that is President Obama's farewell speech. So let's get into that for a moment, because I think much of the nation is going to be watching that. And that is really, I guess, the end of his platform in a manner of speaking. So what do you expect to happen this evening? So um, I expect him to use a lot of hope and change language. I don't think that's going to surprise anybody. I expect him to um, say things without saying them directly to Donald Trump. I expect him to to talk about the value of diversity and fairness in America. I expect him to um, speak to – I think the goals that he's trying to accomplish would be, like, to revive the progressive spirit. Um, The progressives are pretty deflated after Clinton's loss. And so I expect him to try to, you know, fan their flame a little bit. I think the venue, Birga, is really interesting. Um, I think mm-hmm. that this idea of going back to Chicago um, makes a whole lot of sense. I also think that it's, um, uh, it's a little tone deaf. It'll be interesting to see what the feedback is after the fact. He is going back to the city to which he promised hope and change, and it is one of the cities in America that has actually gone the other direction. Um, I mean, you can't look at this recent Facebook Live video of these four young African Americans, you know, kidnapping and terrorizing this disabled white kid and think to yourself, oh, Chicago's a better place after two uh, Obama administrations. And you can't look at the statistics related to, well, were there more homicides in Chicago last year than in L.A. and New York combined? Um, more than 700 people, you know, lost their lives on the streets of Chicago. You can't look at that and say, oh, here's a, here's a city that is feeling the positive change wrought by the Obama administration. So even though I expect him to rattle off the same um, very convincing statistics that he's been giving the last several weeks in support of his legacy, but the reality is people don't feel uh, statistical facts. People feel um, the loss of loved ones, they feel um, poverty, they feel economic uh, stress, and they feel racial tension. And mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the experience that the people, at least in the south side of Chicago, are having right now. So I think the venue is an interesting choice, um, and I think that uh, the, the conversations about hope and change and the, his positive legacy will certainly be um, the centerpiece of what he talks about. Yeah. Well, Carmen, as always, you've got some brilliant things to say. They're always worth reflecting on and really incorporating into our own situation as we examine the platform we have, whether large or small. So thank you very much. We pray for you as you continue on with your writing project, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Have a good one. All right, friends, it is time to go below the fold. This is the point in the show where we go below the fold and lift up stories and make connections that are designed to help you start or engage in other, with others in conversation that may not initially appear to be about God, but where the introduction of eternal principles can change not only the conversation, but the course of another person's thinking and living. All right, this one is in the blaze. Two lions killed after man strips naked and jumps into middle of lion's den in apparent suicide attempt. Okay, take a deep breath, because this is one of those stories that you say to yourself, really? 
So in the context of a national conversation about euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, I'll admit I'm confused as to why we try so hard to save people who are frankly hell-bent on killing themselves. All right, but we got to get God back into this conversation. So you got several approaches that you could take. You got this story, two lions are killed um, after this man stripped naked and jumped into the middle of the lion's den. He was intending to kill himself. Um, He was saved after having been mauled. But the two lions who were just doing what comes instinctively to lions, they were killed. Um, So I'm going to go real simple here. Real simple. This is not a stretch for people who know even the Bible from just vacation Bible school when you were kids. What story from Scripture could you use to make a connection to this story in the headlines today? A man thrown into a lion's den. Okay, again, not challenging, not hard. His name was Daniel, and we'd be talking here about Daniel and the lion's den. So when somebody brings up this story, you know, they say something like, can you believe that story about that guy who jumped into that lion pit? And, you know, and maybe if they are people who are concerned about the lions and not so much about the man, they're giving you um, quite a speech about how the lions should have been allowed to do what lions instinctively do. And the lions should certainly have been allowed to live. Um, so how are you going to redeem that conversation? Well, here's a here's a way. You can say, well, this reminds me of a story in the Bible. It's about a guy named Daniel, and he was dropped into a lion's den. Now, you're going to be met with furrowed brow, quizzical look, and that's just when you just start telling the story. Be sure that you include the impact that Daniel's faith and Daniel's faithfulness had on King Darius and through the king on the entire kingdom. People of faith have an impact on the world. Yes, Daniel was in exile. Yes, Daniel had been um, basically kidnapped from his family as a teenager. He had been taken to a foreign country. Um, He had probably horrendous experiences that none of us want to know and that are not explicitly detailed in the scriptures. But we know what happened to um, two boys Um, who were taken from their countries uh, in these kinds of um, human trafficking uh, relocations that we now call exile. We also know some things about Daniel that were not true of others. And he possessed a faith that could not be broken. He possessed a faith that endured in the face of really overwhelming odds. And in the face of cultural indoctrination, that's really hard to imagine. So even if they are exiles, even if the nation in which they live does not share the faith that they express, people of faith can have an impact on the world. That's the takeaway from the story about Daniel. And the Daniel in the lion's den story is a great way to expose people to something that happens in the scriptures that looks an awful lot like something that just happened in the world. Daniel's a great encouragement to Christians in our culture today because some Christians feel like they're living in exile. 
So here's an idea. Reread the book of Daniel. Reread the book of Daniel. Reread it as an encouragement to yourself, as a person of faith living in exile in in a cultural context where many things do not agree with the biblical worldview. And reread the book of Daniel today in preparation for a conversation with somebody else about the news of the day. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow there will be a story about people in a fiery furnace and you'll be totally prepared. Maybe somewhere today in the headlines, there'll be a reference to somebody reading the writing on the wall. Those are all illustrations from the book of Daniel. All right, friends, you have an opportunity today to enter into conversations with people, with your neighbors, with people in a park, with people who are, you know, frankly, if you're just like stuck in traffic, roll down your window and and start chatting with the person in the car stuck next to you. Consider it a divine appointment, right? You're there on purpose and for a purpose. Just embrace it. You're not going anywhere anyway. So what would it look like for you to take advantage of the divine appointment that God has set to recognize that, as as Ed Stetzer told us, nine out of ten young people are open to having a conversation with a friend about what they believe? Do you have a young person who is your friend with whom you could sit down and have a conversation about your Christian faith, about what you believe about who Jesus is and what he has done, the fullness of the gospel, the good news that God is real and God is personal and God desires to have a restored, eternal relationship with that individual and that God has already done everything that's necessary for their life and salvation. You could have that conversation today. You could be the person who somebody calls down the road into a radio show and says, I'm I'm a Christian because this person shared with me in the context of a traffic jam or shared with me over a cup of coffee or invited me to their church or invited me to a Bible study or invited me into a conversation about their own faith. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you for listening to the Reconnect with Carmen LaBurge. I'm Birga Alden filling in for Carmen this week. You can connect with Carmen online at reconnectwithcarmen.com to sign up for podcasts, donate to the ministry, and share today's show with somebody new. Have a great day, and God bless you. is brought to you by the Presbyterian Lay Committee. To continue the conversation and become part of the Reconnect community, visit reconnectwithcarmen.com. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.